Hello, and welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. If you enjoy this conversation, there are a few different ways you can support us. You can buy a book from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, including the title discussed in this episode, a link to which you'll find in the show notes. There, you'll also find our year of reading subscription, as well as Shakespeare and Company totes, apparel, mugs and other gifts, all shipped from Paris to wherever you are in the world. You can also become a friend of Shakespeare and Company, a programme we set up to get the bookshop through this difficult year. Membership gets you access to exclusively produced content throughout 2021, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Contributors so far include Molly Crabapple, Aishan Hutchinson, Olivia Lang, Deborah Levy, Katika Nair, Clemence Posey, Natalie Portman and George Saunders. You can find out more on friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. Finally, you can rate this podcast wherever you listen. And if you have time, leave a review. It can really help spread the word. I'll be back at the end. Until then, thank you for listening and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. The narrator of Intimacies, Katie Kidmura's enthralling fourth novel, is an interpreter who moves to The Hague to take up a post at the International Criminal Court. To begin with, she wonders if the move might also mark the end to her so far rootless life, but soon begins questioning whether her vocation forbids such an existence. For while the role of the interpreter is to bridge the fissures between language, it also offers the temptation to stare down into those fissures at the seething abyss of human contradictions beneath. Indeed, Intimacies is a book that embodies these very contradictions, restrained but profoundly emotional, many-layered yet deceptively slight, a feat of literary alchemy that testifies to Kitamura's extraordinary skill as a novelist. Katie Kitamura's previous novel, A Separation, was a finalist for the Premio von Ressori and a New York Times notable book. Her two earlier novels were both finalists for the New York Public Library's Young Lions Fiction Award. She's written for publications including the New York Times, Book Review, Guardian and Bomb. She teaches in the creative writing programme at New York University and we're delighted to have her with us tonight. Please join me in welcoming Katie Kitamura. Um, I have a feeling with, at least with your uh, last two novels, so Intimacies and A Separation, that in a way they begin almost before most novels begin, but which I mean is sort of they begin with the title. Now, that may seem like quite a strange thing to say, but my feeling is often, you know, a title can be a little bit ambiguous, a little bit strange, which only kind of takes on meaning uh, as you progress through the book, sometimes near the end of the book and sometimes not at all. Um, Whereas I think what you do with A Separation and now with Intimacies is you present readers with a concept, an idea, that perhaps feels quite familiar to us. And then you take that idea, you take that concept, and you sort of unpack it um, through, through your characters, through, through the, the stories of their lives. Um, now, I, I'm curious to know if that is how the novels come to you. If, the sort of, if, if, you, if you begin with an idea of a, sub, a subject to explore and then start unpacking it, or if that idea sort of crystallizes in the writing? Um, I mean, in the case of Intimacies, we actually changed the title at the, <laughs> at, the last, at the last minute, and it was a kind of experience. I don't know if, if you've had this or, Yakuta, if you've had this, but of just kind of having an envelope and writing down mm-hmm. as many different words and... Um, Ultimately, we, we came upon intimacies, but I, I do think that the titles are important between a separation and intimacies because the two books in a lot of ways are quite similar. The voice is very similar, but 
to me, they're very, very almost diametrically opposed in that a separation is is kind of about a woman who who starts off thinking she understands the story of her life, and then by the end of of the book, kind of understands that she doesn't understand the story of her life. And I think intimacies is something different. It's about pieces falling into place. Mm-hmm. It's about closeness. So I think in that sense, the titles certainly do do represent something thematically very mm-hmm. important. I mean, I think. Um, in terms of where I started with this book, I knew I think I started with a subjective position of an observer, which mm-hmm. is related a little bit to Yakuta's book, but this idea of observation where that falls into voyeurism mm-hmm. and that's very linked to I think the, the the position of the narrator in my previous novel, but in this one I was really interested to kind of think about how then do you step forward into mm-hmm. your life? Is that possible? Mm-hmm. Kind of when you become so used to thinking of yourself as an observer at the margins, what does it mean to mm-hmm. kind of try to step forward? And I think that's that position is interesting to me for a lot of reasons. I mean, in this novel, I was interested in questions of complicity and implication and, mm-hmm. and to what extent calling yourself an observer is, is to grant yourself a kind of neutrality mm-hmm. that is maybe kind of offering you cover that maybe ethically you don't yeah. deserve. Yeah. Um, but also it's, it's not too far from the position of a writer. Mm-hmm. And I think the kind of question of where a writer chooses to place themselves, mm-hmm. um, I guess, I think always, but maybe particularly in the last four or five years, it, is something certainly that I've been thinking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That role of uh, the interpreter is a sort of a yeah. f- fascinating position in a way because it's sort of, it's somebody, as you say, who's very present mm. in a scene. Like when you, um, you know, you see the International Criminal Court, you have the sort of the, mm. the banks of mm. interpreters, and yet their their role is almost to kind of erase themselves. It's sort of like I guess the the perfect interpreter almost wouldn't be noticed. There'd almost be a sort of a what would feel like a sort of a seamless interaction between two people speaking uh, different languages. Um, how did you think yourself into the the mind of an interpreter? Did you actually did you have to go out and meet with people who don't do that role and sort of, or was it sort of is it an act of sort of pure sort of projection and imagination? I mean, I I, I guess I mean there, one thing is kind of thematically I was interested in interpretation and and translation and I, I feel very lucky because my my translator is here tonight um, but but I, I'm very interested in the idea of of characters that language passes mm-hmm. through um, and what that means what it means to be a kind of conduit for languages mm-hmm. is is really interesting to me I think in this book in particular I was thinking about how language nonetheless even as it passes through you leaves a trace mm-hmm. and that it's very hard um not to leave n- not to be changed by the language that you speak and also not to change the language mm-hmm. that you speak um in practical terms i i did interview several interpreters who worked at the international criminal court who were hugely useful um i mean probably the biggest surprise for me is i I somehow thought that they would be, because, because I had this kind of cons- concept of interpretation as almost self-effacing in, uh-huh. in some way, I thought that they would be be kind of relatively quiet or um, kind of austere personalities. And instead they were remarkably, they were very charismatic, um, they were very good at performing, because as they pointed out to me, their job is actually not simply to speak the words, but is also to perform them and mm-hmm. to give them meaning 
that is not necessarily um, communicated just through literal meaning of right. the word. So, like, for example, irony is an example or something that's a joke. You need to be able to communicate that it's a joke in the way that you interpret. So they were actually hugely kind of almost theatrical personalities. Mm. Um, I, I wouldn't say that my narrator is. <laughs> um, but, but, but that kind of idea that... Um, you know that the language language bears so many different traces, mm-hmm. and the I suppose the other thing that I was really interested in is is it, you know language comes from somewhere, and yeah. often it is it comes from and is shaped by institutions, and in this case it's shaped by huge the the institution of of of, of the justice system, and so I, I I definitely wanted to think about how kind of perceptions of neutrality would play into mm. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's. Um one of the things that I hadn't hadn't really considered particularly before about the role of the interpreter was the sort of the the physical presence as well. And, and of course there's there's I guess two different sort of modes of interpretation uh, presented in the book. So there's the one where the, the interpreters are, are sort of sort of detached from mm-hmm. the action. They're kind of in a in a in a booth mm-hmm. and they're they're there but they're not there. Mm-hmm. They're sort of somewhere between participants mm-hmm. and spectators in their sort of positioning in the court. But there are also several scenes where your narrator interprets live and sort of is sort of whispering <laughs> interpreting directly into the the ear of the of this particular character who I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to talk about and that was something that yeah that really struck me was that sort of not only are they occupying a sort of they're sort of a uh, I guess a mental intellectual conduit but also they have this kind of they have to assume this kind of physical role and physical presence sometimes which I can only imagine must be really exhausting mm-hmm. and really draining to sort mm-hmm. of to to channel, I guess, all of this, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. all of this energy and all of this, this sort of this meaning from mm-hmm. one person to another. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that maybe returns, sorry, in a in a very slow way to your very first question about the title, which is that I mean, I think with intimacy is one thing that I, I really realized as I was after I finished the book and before I called it intimacy, but I, I did realize that, you know, intimacy is, we, it has, it's a little bit like security or, or safety. It has certain connotations of, of um, maybe warmth or of, of love or eroticism, but of course it can also be a form of violence. And there are a lot of instances in the book of sexual intimidation and sexual harassment. And certainly what you're speaking about, which is that kind of physical intimacy and the way that that, can feel uneasy and how we can be thrust into physical intimacy with people without wanting it um, was definitely something that played into those scenes. And it's also two very, very different modes of interpretation. One which is almost for the record, and so there's this, um, you're speaking particularly in a context of a tribunal, you really are speaking to a historical record. And then one is that is very intimate and you're speaking to one person and you're speaking for one person. Um, and kind of navigating navigating that kind of gap between those two kinds of communication was was really interesting for me to think about. I mean, one thing that I think in a lot of ways the novel really is about is and which comes from my own my own experience is the question of what it means to be an individual as these kind of larger historic events are taking place around you and how you reconcile that kind of gap between um, the centrality and importance of what you know is happening around you and then your very stupid petty everyday uh-huh. concerns like did I buy milk or my partner didn't unload the dishwasher and and the irritation yeah. you can feel the way that there's the scale of emotion is very hard to manage and 
that's something that I knew that I wanted the book to really be about, which mm-hmm. is to go from the very small scale, you know, interpreting for one person alone, to going to something that was much bigger and almost beyond, um, beyond the point, it, it, beyond the scope of what the individual can actually perceive. Yeah. Um, so she often has only access to fragments of information. She only has little shards. She never has a big picture, and and that was. That felt to me a little bit like what it's like to try to pass through a, through what you know is a historically significant moment. But you know, all the time I feel like I'm trying to see, you know, get the big picture frame, and I keep just getting little snippets here and there. And I think one thing that's really fascinating in in the novel is the effect that that has on the narrator's conception of herself. In mm-hmm. a way, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting you say that the interpreters you met were uh, often quite sort of theatrical. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of uh, quite b- large characters, mm-hmm. and I, I wonder, in in a way, if that's a sort of a uh, a means of defence against kind of being subsumed by uh, this kind of, of of both being a kind of a conduit between of information between two people, but also having to sort of you mentioned the sort of like the the, the petty concerns of one's life, like having to to understand the significance of one's persona in this kind of strange, much more sort of historically significant context. This is actually why I love talking to Adam so much because he makes me think things that I just haven't <laughs> thought before, which is which is absolutely I think I think that is so so true is that performance is a kind of protection. Mm-hmm. And so if you are a performer, then at the end of it you can say to yourself that that was that was that and this is now yeah. my actual life. And certainly performance is something that I'm really preoccupied when I write fiction. I'm always, I mean, in the last book, um, the starting point for that novel was the idea of of a woman who had separated from her partner, but they hadn't told anybody Mm -hmm. the partner dies, and then she has to perform the role of a grieving spouse Mm -hmm. throughout the novel. Um, And and the fact that 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 kind of collapse of the the persona and the individual experience was kind of what the novel tracks. And so here, that idea of... um, the courtroom as a place of as a place of contradiction because it is a place where you think if ever there's a place where the truth matters it is it is in these war crimes tribunals um you know the, the idea that we have this ideal of of justice and th- there is that on the one hand and then there is everything that compromises that as as justice is enacted in real life and and of course you know these trials are incredibly theatrical they are performances um and so that contradiction was something absolutely that was at, at the heart of the book, but the idea that the performance would be a kind of form of self-preservation was not something I had thought about. But I, I think now that you say that, that's absolutely true. Would you be able to read the yes. extract we discussed because I think it fits very well. Yes. What we've just been talking. Um, so this is a um, a moment. It's it's the the witness testimony of a victim um, in the trial of a former president who's been accused of war crimes. And I think the only thing you need to know is that there's a chain of interpretation in the scene. So the witness is speaking Dula, which is then being translated into French, and then the narrator is translating from French into English. Um, and I apologize, it's a little bit on the, on the longer side. The prosecutor rose to his feet. He said he would be asking the witness questions about one particular day during the unrest following the election. He would be obliged to ask her to go into considerable detail, for which he apologized. And he also apologized for speaking to her in French. Unfortunately, he did not speak her language. After a brief pause, during which his words were interpreted, I looked to the booth across the way. 
The young woman gave a curt nod, and the prosecutor cleared his throat and examined his notes before commencing. You were at home on the day in question, were you not? The young woman leaned forward and responded, Yes, I was at home with my family. But you went out in the morning. Yes, I went out in the morning with my brothers. It seemed that things had quieted down and we wanted to go to the school. There had been gunshots the previous night, coming from that direction. Her voice remained low and firm. She spoke with great deliberation, so that each word was like a link in a chain, and the entire thing held fast, even as it moved across languages, from her to the visiting interpreters to us. The prosecutor nodded. How far is the school from your home? Perhaps ten minutes? And what did you find when you arrived at the school? The young woman paused and took a sip of water from her glass. Please take your time. Her gaze snapped up to the prosecutor. She shook her head as if to say that she required no special dispensation, and continued. There are bodies everywhere. How many? Thirty-two. How do you know? Because I counted. Why? What else should I have done? Her manner was very simple as she said this, and there was not a drop of self-pity in it. Robert was interpreting, and I heard his voice run dry. He continued, and they were the targeted ethnicity. Yes. How do you know this? Because they were my neighbors. I grew up with these boys. I knew them very well. I knew their mothers and their sisters. I knew what they liked to eat for their dinner, what they wanted to be when they grew up. Robert motioned to me, and I nodded and took over. And what happened next? There were more gunshots. We heard more gunshots, and so we went home as quickly as we could. We ran home. What happened when you arrived? Our father pulled us inside, and he and my brothers barred the door. We could hear the shouts coming from down the road. I ran outside and hid in the shed. Where were your father and brothers? They stayed in the house. I ran out alone. And what happened next? As I worked, I was obliged to focus on the voice of the interpreter in the opposite booth, which was measured and precise and included much of the sound of the young woman's speech. And yet her voice came through with remarkable clarity in the gaps between interpretation, the syllables distinct, the timbre unmistakable, so that I still had the sense that I was speaking for her, despite the layers of language between us. I said, There was a sound of shouting coming louder and louder, and then the man started banging on the door. I could hear them from the shed outside. I could hear everything. They broke the door down, and then they ordered my father and my brothers to lie on the ground. I heard the sound of gunshots, and I ran out of the shed and into the house. Why did you do this? I paused. Because I wanted to protect my family. How did you hope to protect your family? With my body. It is small and it does not look like much, but it can stop a bullet. But you were not able to protect your family. No. I paused. When I arrived, my brothers were dead. They lay in a line on the floor, face down. My father was lying on the floor beside my brothers, and I begged them not to kill him. I ran forward so that I could stop them. But one of the men hit me in the head with the butt of his gun, and I fell back to the floor and I could not move. I watched as they shot my father in the head. The blood from his wound flowed into the blood of my brothers and I screamed. They ignored me as I went through the house, taking our money and our radio and whatever else they could find. They even ate our food, the food that had been prepared for lunch. They had no respect for the living or the dead. They were laughing. As I screamed, as I shook my brothers, and I shook my father, and I tried to bring them back to life. I stared across at the booth and the interpreter looked up as he spoke, and as I continued to interpret... And for a long moment, we simply stared at each other. The other interpreter looked down again as the witness paused. Sorry, I did not stop to allow for the interpretation, he said. I apologize. The witness looked up to the booths. I apologize, I said. May I continue? Someone must have indicated that sufficient time had lapsed because she began to speak once more. As I looked down at the witness, it prickled through me, the strangeness of speaking her words for her, the wrongness of using this I, 
that was hers and not mine, this word that was not sufficiently capacious. I said, and then they left. They did not think me worth killing, and I was nothing to them. My grief was nothing to them. They thought of me as entirely insignificant, a little girl not even worth the bullet it would take to kill me. The prosecutor nodded. His voice when he spoke was very gentle. And was it your understanding that these men belonged to groups mobilized by the former president in the wake of the election? Case rose at once. Your Honor, the witness cannot be expected to make a judgment. The witness interrupted and he fell silent. My breath caught as I watched her lean forward and speak into the microphone, her arms folded on the desk, her voice steady. There was a slight delay, and then the interpreter in the other booth said, and then I said, the tremble audible in my voice, unlike the voice of the other interpreter, unlike the voice of the witness herself, which remained steady and solid and strong. Yes, there was no doubt in my mind. I know exactly who these men were, and why they were there to kill us. I knew exactly who ordered them to exterminate us all. And as I spoke, I could not help it. My gaze went from the young woman to the former president, who had no need for these layers of interpretation, who sat bolt upright and did not move and whose gaze was trained with utmost attention and care upon the witness. Thank you so much. I think one thing that that extract really highlights is that sense you talked about earlier of the sort of the, the fragments mm-hmm. of a story, um, because that, in the context of the trial of this former dictator, would be considered a fragment mm-hmm. of evidence, mm-hmm. and yet as we all just heard, like it's an incredibly powerful, incredibly um, condemnatory uh, fragment. Uh, And yet there are other moments Mm -hmm. where, for example, the the former president's defence are able to kind of, to reframe certain other fragments of Mm -hmm. evidence to present a a very different Mm -hmm. story. Um, And this is something which our narrator experiences in the court but also in her life outside Mm -hmm. as well and this is something which I don't know if it's necessarily the experience of the court that is sort of making her act in that we're going to Mm -hmm. react to life in that way but there's certainly this sense that the the more she integrates into life in The Hague the less she feels she has a real sense of the city she's in the people she meets and what they mean to each other and how they and how they interact yeah i think that i mean i think that's absolutely true for me the kind of real moment of horror in in a relationship <laughs> or in a friendship i suppose or any experience with a person is, is is when you look at the person that you feel you know very well and, and then you see a kind of stranger and i think that's always a moment that's most intriguing to me um and certainly in that this is happening to her constantly throughout throughout the course of the novel i mean i i made a kind of I actually don't know what I think of it, I'm, but I, I made it. I made a decision <laughs> um, to take to take the kind of central love interest of this character and, and remove him from from the novel, really. So, kind of, we meet him for a couple of scenes, and then and then he leaves, and then he returns at the end of the book, um, which is a structure that I replicated in, in in my last book as as well, where the kind of primary. Um, I actually hate the phrase love interest, but, you know, the, the, the person, uh, whatever he is, um, the object of feeling um, um, is, 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 is not there. And, and, and I actually lately have been wondering why that is, why that is the way I choose to write relationships and, and what that says about me, um, <laughs> which I, 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 I don't I, I don't know. But I think I, I mean, I always I mean, for me. 
um, first person is is a is a form that I I love, but that has for a very long time been very fraught because I always found the kind of authority of first person almost troubling in some some way, um, and it's so different to how I, I feel myself to be. I feel myself to be a person who knows and understands very little of the world, and certainly I'm I'm not I'm not a raconteur. I'm not a person. I'm not a storyteller in that way, and I think first person kind of popped open for me when I, I realized that I could try to use it as a primarily as a mode of speculation and so I think my narrators are always you know it's it's never like here is a thing it's always like here is maybe a thing and then if you look at it from here and then it just kind of <laughs> moves around so it can dwell on there are many hypotheses yeah. she's the kind of character who's always hypothesizing and I and I think in in her personal life, that that kind of hypothesizing around an absence is, is almost the most kind of productive in almost the most erotic and, and romantic mode for her. Just to say, as an aside, I'm going to steal that objective feeling. I like this. <laughs> Forget love interest. Yeah, They're yeah, now your objective yeah. feeling. This is nice. Um, how much of that also was connected to the, the location of The Hague as well? I mean, I uh, maybe you know people can call out, I don't think I've ever read a novel set in The Hague before. Um, and it's sort of, it's a... It's and, I, and and having never visited, I'm, I I think probably your book is my sole source of reference for what the Hague might be like as a city. But it seems, in a way, like so. The narrator she comes from New York, um, or was she? You know, sorry, I should specify she's she has come from New York. She's not sort of because she is quite sort of rootless and in, as I said in the introduction, kind of in search of a of of a home of roots. Um, and it feels very much to me that sort of the Hague is very undefined as a city mm-hmm. compared to somewhere like New York, which may have many multifarious meanings for, for different people, but which seems to have a, an identity that's in some way easier to pin down than, um, than the Hague. I mean, was, the, was the city for you, uh, the, it sounds a bit of a cliche, but there's sort of an important character in the book. I mean, it absolutely was, and I had such a funny experience writing the book because I... Um, I, I I went I went to the Hague and I and I, I sat in on a on a trial at the ICC and I spent about a week or two two there I think um, kind of you know doing all the kind of writerly stuff like finding the neighborhood where my characters would live and and finding that you know doing all of that kind of stuff um, and and I did feel that it was a very familiar city to me and I I didn't know exactly why and I sort of wrote that into the novel and then. Um, I realized after I finished the first draft that, in fact, I'd spent a lot of time there as a child, mm-hmm. which I had completely forgotten somehow. Um, and because my father, who's an who's an academic, he he would take a sabbatical, and so we would all go as a family for several months, I think two or three times. And so there was a real familiarity to the city that I couldn't quite put my finger on while I was writing it. And then I later realized why that was, and then that became, in some ways, a kind of emotional anchor for the final section of the book where certain pieces start to fall into place and she's finally able, able to place things in their context and that was something that was directly just taken from my own life that kind of feeling of strange alienation from yourself in, in that you, you you cannot place so you don't have the perfect record or context of these long segments of your life um but in practical terms i i knew that i wanted the book to be at a uh a war crimes tribunal, which meant almost entirely that it would be in, in, in the Hague. So. It's interesting what you say, and I'm going to try and talk around it because uh, I don't want to give too much away about mm-hmm. what actually happens in the book, but the this idea of the 
the pieces falling into yeah. place in a way. Because one thing um, that I, I think I think we can talk about is just, there's there's a moment where uh, a particular upcoming political event is referred to that places it in a particular gives it a particular date at a particular time Mm -hmm. and so it sort of places it around sort of early 2016 I guess Um, and I found that uh, because of what's happened in the world in in the UK in the US in various other countries since 2016 my sense was that this it was going to be about a novel a novel of fragments dispersing almost kind of moving away from each other like sort of you know shards of an iceberg or something like that and yet this 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 urge to to bring the fragments together i found both sort of surprising and 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 refreshing Mm -hmm. in a way do you mean at the very end of the book Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, yes. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I guess I have, to, I have two two thoughts. Um, one is that I, I, I think I found over the the last four or five years as I was writing the book, the kind of um, the urge to consolidate was very, very strong. Um, um, and then, and then. Um, Sorry, I've completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> if I had like a fugue moment where I was staring at the scaffolding and I, and I, I come, um, um, the end, the end of the book. I, um, I mean, I, I'm very nervous of writing the same thing again. And I, and I think I felt a kind of anxiety of, of just of doing what I know. And I think I, I felt like I knew how to write an ending where a character would kind of, um, Feel that sense of of alienation or loneliness or 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 whatever it would be. Um, I, f- I think that's very much how I ended the last book. And so, even though I didn't know exactly what would be happening at the end of the book, I knew kind of the feeling I wanted it to have, which is um, which it, it doesn't achieve. But I I I've always loved the ending of the Chekhov short story, the lady with the lapdog, or the lady with the little lapdog, or the there are many different translations of it. But I, I think the end of that story is so extraordinary because you think you know these characters and you think you you understand what the fate of their relationship might be and then just really in a kind of page or so it's just like a door opening and that to me is just one of the most magical moments in in literature that that he's able to do that and I always thought when I was writing the book I thought I I, I kind of know how to do or I think I know how to do this kind of sense of claustrophobia and this sense of paralysis Um, and I don't know that I know how to do this sense of a door opening up. And so I knew that I wanted at the end of the book to have this, this sense of something opening up rather than closing down. Um, uh, and then, sorry, and I remembered what I was going to say when I stared off into the, to the (laughs) plastic ivy, um, which, which is that one of the, one of the, undo the magic. No, I'm sorry. (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Um, um, One of the strangest things about the last four years is that um, it's been a period of such deep kind of global uncertainty and unrest and unhappiness, deep and kind of trauma. But within my own personal life, it has actually been a moment of great happiness. You know, I, I, I have had children. I, I'm with a person that I love. And so kind of reconciling that, that the kind of almost... Um, to not dismiss that feeling was something that I wanted to try to think about in, in this book, was that it is still a feeling... Um, 
that exists. And I actually think what's much more difficult rather than saying, what does your personal happiness mean in a time of global, is, is actually to, re is, is that as a human, you need to reconcile those two things. Mm -hmm. Is that we live in a world where that contradiction exists. We live in a world where you have to grapple with that cognitive dissonance mm -hmm. of, of, of your small life and its yeah. small happinesses and, and the larger kind of things that are happening yeah. around you. That's fascinating because I, the last thing I was going to come on to talk about, and I just wrote the word um, several times as, I was, as, as, as a note as I was reading the book, was the word home. Um, and I wonder if that's kind of what you just described, actually, that sort of that sense of feeling at home and being at home, you know, with the person you love, with the children, like this kind of, uh, you mentioned a door opening the sense of a door opening. And as soon as you said that, it's sort of the image that came into my mind was this idea of a door opening mm -hmm. into a, a home, mm -hmm. in fact. Mm -hmm. And that is something which is very sort of preoccupying for your narrator, who, who does feel you know, very rootless. Her, her family have, have moved around a lot and she, and she feels quite lost. There seems to be this sort of, this interrogation throughout um, about what, what, a, what home means and if she has the capacity of finding it. Mm -hmm. And there was one particular moment that is going to seem a bit odd, but like when um, she has to go and interpret for um, an, uh, an Islamist fighter who, who has been, who's been captured. And there's just a, it's a description of his, uh, his cell. And it's just a very sort of, um, I have it here, you said the space we gathered in was somewhere between a cell and a dormitory room with a single bed and a desk and a toilet in one corner. Mm -hmm. And one thing that struck me in reading that was kind of what he had there was almost the elements of mm -hmm. a sort of a physical home, a sort of a living space. And yet he was as far away from anything mm -hmm. resembling a home as he, as he could be. Um, so... All of that to say, uh, I, I, I'm curious about your sort of uh, was that was that a sense that you had when writing that to sort of that that she was essentially trying to sort of take the fragments of the world and sort of construct them into a home. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, it, it, the the book starts with the the fact of her father's death, and then it really never returns to it until the very very end. But I I think the structure of the book is a is a book that is about grief, and I think. Um, particularly for people who maybe have grown up between cultures, as I very much did, um, where, where that notion of home is not always located in a place, but is often located in the bodies of the mm -hmm. people that you love. Mm -hmm. What happens when that body is gone, I think, was something that was almost a starting point for the novel. And so that is, to some extent, I think, what she's searching for. And a lot of the spaces in the novel are are temporary. She's in temporary accommodation. She moves into her objective feelings apartment <laughs> um which is very much haunted by the ghost of his his wife or his his soon-to-be ex-wife um and, and so that that idea that it, it, you can that you do not rely on physical spaces for a sense of home which, which again is actually quite like your novel in many many ways Yukuta, um with 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 the idea of the hotel and these spaces that are being demolished and taken apart around you and where does that leave leave characters it's also kind of you know i think it's when I was little, the kind of idea of being cosmopolitan felt very sophisticated, and it, and it felt like a positive thing. And I think it's been interesting. I mean, I think particularly Theresa May had some kind of very derogatory way of referring to yeah, yeah. people who are of nowhere. I think it was yeah, yeah, cosmopolitan. Yeah. Those people are of nowhere, and so that that idea of 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 um, that statelessness is not the right 
word by any means, and it, it is overstating what the narrator um, feels and, and her position. But that, that idea that, that it's just a different way of being and it's not necessarily the home that she finds is no less valid than the home of somebody who is, you know, considers themselves to be of a, of a place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. yes. That is all we've got time for. Please give a very big round of applause for Katie Kittenhara. You have been listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Links to the books discussed in this episode are available in the show notes, alongside information about how to become a friend of Shakespeare and Company. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating it wherever you listen. The intro and outro music is Mr Ginger by the brilliant Alex Fryman, available on his album Play It Gentle. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for listening.